invite you to open your Bible with me to Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7. I have several titles for the message this morning, and the bulletin that says belonging to Jesus, that'll work. I've entitled my copy, What It Means to Be a Christian, um, so you can take your pick. I think they both get at what the, our text is about here this morning. As Paul is continuing a conversation about um, the relationship between the law and the, and the Christian, and so... We're going to pick it up at verse 1 of chapter 7. This is a, just a magnificent chapter. And once again, we'll be taking our time as we work through it. We're going to read the first six verses of Romans uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Paul writes, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a, on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code." Let's ask the Lord to bless the word this morning. Father, our God, we now come to your your beautiful, infallible, inspired word that divides between marrow and bone. And we, Lord, come needy and asking, O God, that you would use your word today to accomplish your gracious purposes. What we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, give us. And what we are not, O God, make us. By the power of your Spirit and for your glory, we pray it. Amen. Well, as you know, I, like many of you, uh, was born and raised here in West Michigan. And um, if you've been paying attention at all to geography, you realize that West Michigan is not known for mountains. Uh, so growing up, uh, I, uh, I, I knew about mountains, of course, read about mountains, I saw mountains, but I never really understood what a mountain was in, until I uh, went first out to Colorado. I, was, I remember being astonished that you could see them from like 60 miles away. I, uh, if, if you played a word association uh, game with me in high school and you said the word ski slope, I would say Cannonsburg. <clears throat> That's, what I, that's all I knew. I've, I'd never been to Cannesburg. The ski team from uh, Covenant went to Cannesburg, but I, w- I went home and did chores. So I hadn't even been there, but I just know that's where you went to go skiing. Um, and there was, um, that was just my understanding of, of, of what a ski slope was. Well, imagine my surprise when um, Joanne and I, on our way out to uh, Westminster, uh, after we had been married in December, we drove through Colorado, and I, I said, hey, honey, let's go skiing. Uh, we had never been on anything more than the smallest bunny hill in some, uh, uh, up in Traverse City, actually. So we, uh, imagine my surprise when we get on the ski lift, and we just go up and up and up and up and up. It's like 30 Cannonsburgs. <clears throat> that was a mountain. That was a ski slope. 
Now I finally understood. It was incredible. It was breathtaking. It was exhilarating, terrifying even in some sense. But, but that was a real mountain. Well, as I'm reading through the book of Romans, uh, it seems to me that we tend to have a Cannonsburg conception of Christianity compared to the Mount Everest conception of the Apostle Paul. When we hear the word Christian, we tend to define the term according to the things that we believe or things that we do. We go to church, we read the Bible, we, we, we pray, try to live a Christian life. Uh, but that is not how Paul thinks about what it means to be a Christian. It's not how he comes at it. So when Paul thinks about what it means to be a Christian, he points us to these massive, majestic, towering gospel truths of what God has accomplished and is doing for sinners in Jesus Christ. These are the things that define what it means to be a Christian. And it is incredible and breathtaking and exhilarating. And my heart's desire this morning is, is that if you're not a Christian, that by the time we get to the end of this message and as we open God's Word, you will wish that you were and you will want to become one. Because it's the most glorious thing available to mortal man. And if you are a Christian, that you will be able to see through the eyes of the Apostle Paul with much greater clarity and much deeper joy than ever before uh, what it means to be a Christian. That you will see that term is a Mount Everest of towering, stunning, glorious truth that shapes your worship and defines your life. The main idea uh, in the text here this morning is, is this, that by the death of Christ... We have been set free from the law so that we might be joined to Jesus in order to bear fruit for the glory of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be a Christian. We've, 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 by the death of Christ, a Christian is someone by the death of Christ has been set free from the law in order to be joined to Jesus so that they bear fruit for the glory of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what a Christian is. Now, our text this morning is a continuation of Paul's discussion from Romans chapter 6, and, and specifically, it is a, sort of an expansion on what Paul said in 6 verse 14. If you have your Bible, please just note there, because Paul drops a statement there without really explaining it, and it's a stunning statement, a striking statement, an offensive statement to the Jewish community for sure. 6 verse 14, Paul says, sin will have no dominion over you since... You are not under law, but under grace. And in a real sense, uh, all of chapter 7 is a commentary on that statement. What does that mean? What is the relationship of the law to a Christian? And it's a very important question because many, many professing Christians get it wrong. And you can get it wrong on one or two sides, one of two ways. On the one hand, right, you can get it wrong by being a legalist. John Stott defines a legalist as someone who imagines that their relationship to God depends on their obedience to the law, and they are seeking to be both justified and sanctified by it. So if you've sensed that your relationship to God is dependent upon your obedience to the law, that's, that's a strand of legalism. Conservative churches 
tend to attract this air, the air of legalism. On the other hand, you can be an antinomian. Antinomos, Greek word for laws, nomos. You're, you're anti-law. And antinomians are people who take the words, you are not under the law, as an excuse for living as you please, an excuse for license. And so they will proclaim, we have no law but love. And then they will interpret love in a way that satisfies sensual desires or that, that accommodates the, uh, the culture around them. You're seeing it happen everywhere today. Liberal churches tend to attract that error. Well, what's the biblical position? What's the gospel position? How are we to understand the role of the law in the Christian life? We've already seen that it has no role in our justification. By the works of the law, Paul said, no one will be justified. That, chapter 3, verse 20. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. So justification, the, God's declaration of our innocence before the law, that, that happens by grace, through faith, apart from works. What about Sanctification. What's the role of law there in this process of growing in godliness? And it's really a critical question. This isn't just a theological thought exercise. Uh, your understanding of, of this issue will have a profound implication for how you actually live your Christian life. When you are struggling with sin, and if, if you're a Christian, you're struggling with sin because the flesh is desiring one thing and the spirit within you is desiring another thing, and and the question is, where are you going to turn for help? What is your strategy to defeat the besetting sins in your life? What's the strategy? Is it by trying harder, being more disciplined, gaining more knowledge? Your answer, you see, to this question sheds light on how well you understand the gospel. We need to get this right if we're to live a life that bears fruit for the glory of God. So let's let the Apostle Paul teach us. This morning, the three points will be, first the principle, then the illustration, and then the application. The principle, the illustration, and the explanation. The principle, first one, Paul says, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. You see, Paul is going to argue, and is arguing, that there has been a definitive, once-for-all separation between the Christian and the law. And so he says, don't you realize that the law is binding on a person only as long as he is alive. But a Christian, in Paul's mind, by definition, is someone who has died. He's talked about that in chapter 6. He says it again here in, in uh, 7 verse 4. To be a Christian is, some, is to be someone who has died to the law. 7 verse 4. Died to the law. Verse 6 again. We are released from the law having died to that which held us captive. Now, right at this moment, even if we don't know what that means, let's just let Paul's words settle. You see, this is not a side note in Paul's theology, that we can sort of say, I don't really understand that, and so I'll just push that off to the side. This is at the very center of how Paul thinks about 
the gospel and about the law and about what it means to be a Christian. It's at the middle of it. So the question that we need to ask is, what does Paul mean by the law? What does he mean by the law? Does he mean the Ten Commandments? Is Paul suggesting that the Christian is under no obligation to honor their parents or to tell the truth or to be sexually pure? Uh, is he saying that we're not required to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and, and love our neighbor as ourselves? And, and of course the answer is that's not what he's saying. Uh, that, would, that would contradict what he says in chapter 12 and following, what he says in, in his other letters. Paul clearly believes that uh, we are required, we have an obligation to obey God, and the Spirit will move us in that direction. And so, um, what does he mean? Well, the, the simplest answer is that he's talking about the Mosaic Law. The whole system of rules and regulations that made up the Old Covenant. And specifically, he's talking about the, old, uh, the Mosaic Law and the Old Covenant, or that system which serves the ruling principle of the Old Covenant, which is do this and live. You'll find that scattered in different places throughout the Old Testament. Do this and live. That's the thing to see. The Mosaic Covenant is, is filled with signs of grace and broadly speaking is a covenant of grace, but at its heart there is a law principle in that it promises blessings to those who do what? Obey. And it promises curses to those who do what? Disobey. And Moses, even when he gives it, remember he says to Israel, you're not going to be able to keep this. This isn't going to end well. And the, and the history of Israel proves that's exactly right. Israel's experience under the Mosaic system was an experience of failure. They could not keep it. And thus they suffered its judgments. So consequently, when Paul speaks of the law here in the book of Romans, in these first six, seven chapters, you'll notice that he speaks almost entirely in negative terms about what the law can't do. So 3.20, by the works of the law, no human being will just be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law in, makes you aware of sin. 3.27, we hold that no one is justified by faith, we, no, excuse me. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 4.15, the law brings wrath. 5.20, the law came in to increase the trespass. It's a very fascinating statement, and we'll get to that more as we move into chapter 7. For those who think we just need to post, write Ten Commandments, and that what will help, well, Paul would say the law came in to increase the trespass. Not that the Ten Commandments aren't true and, and in some sense maybe can restrict uh, external sin, but it can't do anything to change the human heart. So Paul's concern, let me move on, the Paul's concern with the Mosaic Law is not that, it's, that it wasn't true or good or from God. It was all of those things. The problem is that it has no solution for the problem of sin. It is utterly incapable of actually dealing with the sin problem. And, and that's true not only of the Mosaic law as it is applied to Israel, it's true of God's law written on the human heart. You see, the law of God, whether it's written on stone or written on the heart, it can make you aware of sin, it can convict you of sin, it can condemn you for your sin, but it is utterly 
incapable of overcoming the reigning power of sin. It cannot free us from our universal bondage to Adam and to the fall into sin. And so when Paul talks about the law, he'll often just point out this inability. It's not able to do those things. And by doing so, Paul points to the deepest existential crisis of humanity. The, the, the greatest issue of humanity is, is not whatever you're dealing with today, on, 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 right, as you just live our day-to-day life, as real as those things are, as painful as they may be, it is not the deepest existential human crisis of your life. The deepest crisis is that you have been born a descendant of Adam, And so the things that belong to Adam in his fall into sin belong to you. Things like sin and the power of the flesh. uh, Things like condemnation and hell. right? The wrath of God. Paul says that very specifically in Ephesians chapter 2. Those are the things that belong to you by virtue of your, your union with Adam and there's nothing you can do to fix that. Under the law, you are captive to the flesh and to sin and to death. That's the reality of, of mankind. And so when you see people walking the streets blithely, you just know that unless they know Jesus Christ, this is what is true of them. It's what is true of every single person who's been born into this world save Christ. So, the good news of the gospel, you see, is, is, is news meant to directly and intentionally face that issue. And praise be to God, that's exactly what we find in our Lord Jesus. And so Paul goes on here with an illustration. The principle is that there needs to be a death in order to be freed from the law. The illustration, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Now, many people mistakenly take these verses to mean that a person who has been divorced, no matter what the reason or cause, no matter if they're innocent or guilty, are forbidden to remarry until their ex-spouse dies. Some of you might hold that view this morning. It's what you've been taught. Well, Let me just try to quickly correct that mistake. Two reasons why I'm convinced that's not the case here. One, it violates a basic principle of biblical interpretation. When we come to a text, any text, we have to ask ourselves, what is the author trying to say? What is the author's intent? Is Paul intending here to give us a teaching on whether or not it is appropriate for a divorced believer to, to remarry. Is that Paul's intent? So he's been talking about the, the, the wonders of justification and, and now he's, he's, he's into law and, and the relationship of the law to the believer life and we've been set free. And then he says, but hold on just a minute. I want to give a teaching here on whether a divorced Christian can remarry. It's just not the case. If you want to see what Paul says about a divorced Christian remarrying, you need to go to 1 Corinthians 7. That's where he talks about it. And so we just need to, where is Paul going? What's Paul thinking? So that's the first reason I don't believe that's the case. Uh, This text isn't dealing with that issue. But secondly, that position 
misinterprets the illustration itself. It, it adds things in that Paul doesn't say. So Paul says nothing whatsoever in this text about the nature of a relationship between a wife and her ex-husband. There's nothing in this text about that, the nature of that relationship. That's important, you see, if you're going to go in that direction. The illustration is about a wife and her real husband, the man to whom she is currently married, the man to whom she currently belongs. That's the only way the illustration works. So, I know it's a side tangent, but I, I, there's so often I hear mistakes related to this text, I just want to set it straight. Now let's go back to the point. What does Paul want us to see? Well, he wants us to see, just see this simple principle that when a man dies, his wife is set free from her legally binding relationship to him, free then to belong to someone else. Death breaks the legal bond of marriage. And the point is very simply, uh, likewise, Paul says, a Christian, you see, is like the wife. We were in a legal binding relationship to the law. We belonged to the law. That word belong is very important. It ruled over us. It defined our status before God. It dictated our future. But a death has happened which freed us once and for all from that binding relationship to the law so that we no longer belong to the law. We belong to another to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me quickly illustrate that to give you a sense of the emotional impact of it. For most people, the death of a spouse is in unbelievably traumatic, devastating. In fact, uh, if you just Google uh, what are the most traumatic uh, things that you can experience in life, the death of a loved one can constantly ranks as number one. Divorce is number two. Interestingly, in one list I saw that getting married was number three, but that's another, another topic. But imagine that you're married to a person who does nothing but threaten you, abuse you, control, and condemn you. Never a kind word or thought. Uh, being married to this person is like living in a Nazi concentration camp. There's just anger, violence, threats of imminent death. And then he dies. If it were me, I'd have a hard time crying at the funeral. And that would feel to me like being reborn. The, the bully is gone. The abuser is, is, is gone. It would feel like the prisoners running out of the gates of Auschwitz when the allies showed up. We're finally free. And that's exactly how Paul wants us to understand this truth. We've been set free. So verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. Let's just unpack. There's so much gospel truth here. Look first, if you've got that verse right in front of you, the, the instrument of our freedom. You have died through the, uh, to the law through the body of Christ. This is what Jesus accomplished for you. When Jesus died for you, in your place on the cross, you died to the law. That means that your rescue from the condemnation and curse of the law, your freedom from the category of the law, it's not just a 
theology. It's not a, just a doctrine. It's not a religious feeling. It's certainly not something that you're called to accomplish or pursue. If our death to the law happened in the death of Christ, it means that our freedom is an objective fact rooted in the historic reality of Christ's crucifixion. So that when Jesus said, it is finished, your legal binding relationship to Adam and to the law was finished. Which means, you see, that when the devil or your own conscience holds up the law of God to accuse you, you can respond with the full authority of Scripture, standing on the objective rock of the death of Christ, yes, it's true, I have sinned against God. Yes, it is true, I deserve all the condemnation that the law promises to the guilty. But I have died to the law in the body in the death of Christ. The accusation is true, but it has no power, you see. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Why? Because I am his, and he is mine. I don't belong to the law. I don't belong to that system. I don't belong to that principle. I belong to Jesus Christ. And that's the second thing we need to see, the purpose Right, So you've died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. God's purpose is not just to set you free from condemnation. God's purpose is to bind you to Christ, bind you to his son. Your legal relationship with Adam was broken. That legal relationship with all the death and the misery that came along with it, that was broken that you might belong to Jesus Christ with all the blessing and all the life that flows from it. And that's why Paul describes Jesus as he does Notice, we belong to him who has been raised from the dead. We belong to the king and author of life. We belong to the one who crushed the power of sin and death. We belong to the one who has promised by his own righteousness to justify us and by his own infinite power to sanctify us and to bring us one day into the land of promise where everything is made new. That's what it means to belong to Jesus. You see, the idea of belonging to Jesus is at the core of what Paul means when he talks about a Christian. It's at the very core of what it means to be a Christian. So when, when Paul greets the saints in Romans chapter 1, verse 6, he refers to them as those who have been called to belong to Jesus. Those who have been called by God to belong to Jesus. I cannot think of a deeper biblical definition of a Christian than that. A Christian is someone who belongs to Jesus. It means they don't belong to Adam. They don't belong to the world. They don't belong to the devil. They certainly do not belong to themselves. They belong to Jesus. They are his treasured possession, bought with his own precious blood. Their life is defined by the love of Jesus. Their future is determined by the gracious purposes of Jesus. The, the most defining essential truth about a Christian is that they belong to him. His righteousness is their righteousness. His life is their life. His riches are their riches. His inheritance is their inheritance. 
the security and the love and the honor that he has before the Father is the security and the love and the honor they have before the Father. And nothing, absolutely nothing, will be able to separate them from the love they have in Jesus Christ, their husband and their Lord. They belong to Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. Is that how you think of yourself? Is that how you see yourself? Can you imagine the difference it might make if you did, if you, if you understood this incredible truth that you don't belong to you, you don't belong to your sin, you don't belong to, to the world of, of Adam and his fall and all the condemnation that it brings, but you belong to Jesus Christ with all the grace, the fountains of goodness and love that pour out upon you through him. You see, friends, it is belonging to Jesus that empowers sanctification. Notice what Paul says next. You died through the body of Christ to the law in order that you might, so that you might belong to Jesus in order that we may, may bear fruit for God. So that we may bear fruit for God. God has called us to belong to Jesus so that we might live a life that brings glory to him. Friends, this is why you were created in the first place. This is why God made you in his image and placed you on this earth. So that you might bear fruit for his glory. This is where your true humanity is found. And you know, if you've lived for any amount of time at all, you know that sin is fundamentally fruitless. It brings desolation, it brings misery, it brings death. Maybe not initially, but, but over time, you just watch, look at people who've given themselves to their desires. It's, it's frightening how, how empty and, and vapid that life quickly becomes. And left to ourselves, that's exactly where we would have gone. We would have wasted it all. Your years, your strength, your gifts, the opportunities that God gave you to, to glorify Him, you would have wasted it all. Utter desolation at the end of the line. The one life you get to live would have been thrown away in, a, in fruitlessness except that God intervened in your life in Jesus Christ. And God did so so that you might belong to him and that you might bear fruit for God's purpose and for his glory. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. You see, sanctification doesn't happen by the commands of the law. It doesn't happen by trying harder. Do we need to try and make every effort? Yeah, Peter just told us we do. We need to add to our faith virtue. Notice you've got to start with faith. What do you believe? Do you believe the gospel that God receives you and welcomes you freely, fully because of Jesus Christ? Or do you believe that God gave you the law so that you could clean up your act and make yourself worthy? What, what would uh, your life say you believe? Add to faith virtue. This is the faith where it begins. That I, by the grace of God, I belong to Jesus. And out of that relationship, because I've died to the law and belong to Christ, God is at work transforming my life. Jeremiah Burroughs, an old 17th century pastor, said it this way. From Christ as from a fountain, sanctification flows into the soul, souls of the saints. 
Their sanctification comes not so much from their struggling and endeavors and vows and resolutions as it comes flowing to them from their union with Him. That's how we change, friends, through that, that, the union with Christ, through understanding what it means to be a Christian. If you've confessed your sin and come to the Lord, you now belong to Jesus. And Jesus is at work by His Spirit to bear fruit in your life to the glory of God. But we need to start with faith. And so I encourage you this week, let this thought permeate your life as you live your day-to-day life. I am not my own. I belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. I live to bear fruit for the glory of God. That's why I'm here. And I do so not in my strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. I walk by the Spirit. I belong to Jesus. I live to bear fruit for the glory of God. I walk by the power of the Spirit. I belong to Jesus. And I live to bear fruit for the glory of God. And I do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. And friend, watch Jesus transform your life. Let's pray. God, our Father, we just confess that our thoughts are so small when it comes to what it means to be a Christian and what it means to understand and believe the gospel, what it, what, what it means to have fellowship and communion with you, the living God, maker of heaven and earth, through Jesus Christ, the Son who loved us and gave his life for us, and what it means now to walk by the, the Holy Spirit who's been poured out and given to us. Lord, we're babes in understanding these things and grasping them, but we plead with you that you would not leave us there, but, but that through your word, Lord, you would open our eyes to see the, the, the towering majesty of these truths. And that, Lord, understanding who we are would, Lord, empower us in a brand new way so that we walk this newness of life by the power of the Spirit as we abide in Jesus Christ. And as we thank you, our Father, who called us to belong to Jesus. God in heaven, these might be new thoughts to us this morning, and I just pray that your Spirit would teach these truths to our hearts in a way that transforms the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about our life, the way that we relate to you. And we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, a sacrament where Jesus himself reminds us and communicates to us the fact that we belong to him. This is a supper that belongs uh, to his people, that he gives to those who've confessed their sin and called upon his name. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward, and we are going to uh, come to the table this morning celebrating and listening to the Lord speak to us through the sacrament. This is God talking to us, Jesus speaking to us. Uh, about this incredible truth that we belong to him. This is, a, uh, this is a covenant sign, just like a ring is a covenant sign of a marriage. The sacrament is Jesus' covenant sign to you, telling you who you are, uh, telling you what, what God is uh, at work to accomplish in your life, telling you all that belongs to you in our Lord Jesus. And so this morning, we invite you to join us at the table. If you're a member of uh, the church, a professing member of the church of Jesus Christ, and if you're, uh, if you're not a, member, a professing member, we would just invite you this morning um, to let Jesus speak to your heart today as the gospel is communicated that Jesus died for our sin, was raised 
to life again, that we might have life. And if, that's, if, that, if you don't know if that's true of you today, would you please come and talk to us? It's a wonderful uh, opportunity for you to deal with Jesus Christ, to come to terms with the gospel. But we ask that you uh, be, be a member of the church of Jesus Christ, for this is given to those who belong to him by profession of their faith. And then uh, we would ask that you not be living in ongoing unrepentant sin where you belong to Christ, but you are living as though you belong to the world. You belong to yourself. And let this then be a moment for you to deal with Christ on that issue, that you just bow your head today and you talk to God about the reality of the power of the sin that you're facing and the inability you have to a break free from that sin. And so deal with Christ on that this morning and, and, and take a step today. Uh, what are you going to do and in obedience to Jesus Christ about the reality of your sin? And, and what's it going to mean for you to, to ask for help and, and, and uh, learn how to abide in Christ so that you're becoming a transformed person, not just an externally religious person? These are the things um, that we're dealing with this morning, the reality of the gospel, the reality of Jesus.